When we think about designing social change interventions, we're not starting with a closed mind. We're not saying the only financing solution for a social program is a donor. Our starting point is if there's a problem to be solved, there might be many actors who have an incentive to finance the solution. It's never going to be one thing that's going to change the system. You know, to not have the hubris to imagine that one group of people or one thing or one intervention is going to change a system. But in a sense, you need a confluence of forces. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact. Because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Berelovitz, founder of Spring Impact. Today's episode is rich with practical insights. We hone in on how a business mindset can spur innovation with social enterprises. To tackle this topic, I have the immense pleasure of speaking with Nicola Golombek. Nicola is the executive director of Yellowwoods, a private investment group based in South Africa. Yellowwoods is the investment holding company of businesses in the financial, restaurant and leisure sectors. One of these companies includes global fast casual chain Nando's. In this episode, Nicola shares how her journey as an anti-apartheid activist led her to the career she has now. In designing and pursuing social change at scale, we also talk about why there is no silver bullet, as well as the benefits of having an entrepreneurial approach to big social problems. Having been formed as a young adult, both by the inequities of the apartheid system and as an anti-apartheid activist, I think I have always understood that we have to change big systems, that it's that big systems are broken, that it's not a few people here and there that are doing bad things or a few people, you know, that are at the receiving end of what doesn't work in systems, that systems are deeply flawed and that to change systems takes movements, large, complicated movements of people, of systemic barriers being unlocked of breaks in patterns. The apartheid era enforced policies of racial segregation in South Africa, which ended in the early 90s. Being an anti-apartheid activist, particularly at a time where the struggle wasn't just with the ANC in exile, but with the UDF inside the country, building complex and diverse coalitions to really mount a joint offensive against an inequitous system. I think I really came to learn about the importance of saying it's never going to be one thing that's going to change the system. It's never going to be, you know, to not have the hubris to imagine that one group of people or one thing or one intervention is going to change the system, but that in a sense you need a confluence of forces. You need a confluence of sometimes luck and circumstance and a lot of orchestration of effort to actually move change forward. And I think that I've really applied those principles that I learned at that time in much of the work that I've done since and continue to apply them today. So how do you define 
the systems that you work in? You know, there are the very, very large systems, whether one calls it the economy, in which there is very unequal and unfair distribution of benefit uh, and resources. One might talk about the smaller systems within that, right, where there are particular systems that either contribute to that inequality and inequity in the way the economy works. Um, so, for example, you know, the fact that children, when they're young, that their cognitive milestones are pretty much determined by their economic status and that that sets a pattern in motion of inequity that is extremely hard to break in an economy which then sort of affirms and consolidates that lack of mobility. So that thing of early childhood development may be a, a system within the broader system of a lack of equality and, and mobility within the economy. Our economy in South Africa, across the African continent and globally is characterized by inclusion and exclusion from opportunity and from the ability to be mobile in the economy in a way that enables households and, and ordinary people to progress and to make their own choices for their own children and for themselves. And on the other hand, I also see the system as full of human ingenuity and resourcefulness and, and incredibly strong institutions whether those are the firms and, and businesses that build incredible capability to, to get things done, whether that's government institutions that manage collective services and processes that we need collectively managed, or whether this is, you know, community-based and organizations that, that represent collectives of people at a much more micro level. These are also great resources that we need to work with and in and, and for. I'm a big believer in, in institutions as, as well as in individual people. So you talked about systems and how they can be big, complex, but ultimately there's this aim around actually helping people help themselves essentially, really giving them the opportunity to earn their own money and stand on their own two feet so that they can support their families and live their lives to the full. So what role does Yellowwoods play in this system? How have you set that up to sort of ensure that you're able to influence and push as much as possible? So Yellowwoods has set itself the purpose to grow businesses and people in a way that can be a catalyst for significant and enduring positive change in the world. And so the starting point of Yellowwoods is that we should try to be a positive change agent in systems or markets, in this case, which is a really important part of the system, in which we have levers that we can pull, we have influence, we can exercise, we have assets or capability that we can bring that can be useful to shifting that market or system to be more inclusive or to contribute to, you know, an environmentally sustainable world. And so our starting point is to work with the levers we have and to make sure that we do the most we can with the levers we have. And in the first instance, that is the businesses in which we're invested, their core value chains, their products and services, their capabilities, and how do we 
grow those businesses in a way that shares value with the many employees, customers, and partners to that business, but also that leverages the assets of the business to actually be a a catalytic agent of change in the markets and systems in which they operate. So that's the first thing that we have and that we try and deploy, if you like, as a catalyst for positive change. According to Nicola, Yellowwoods also has its own aspirations, resources and capabilities as a social innovator. We can think as Yellowwoods about a system that requires businesses to behave differently, but also business to partner with government, business to partner with the social sector, government to be capacitated in a particular way. And we can, as Yellowwoods, then also try and be a helpful contributor to that social innovation. And we would do that both through bringing those kinds of leadership groups together to co-create solutions, often playing that kind of convening or facilitation role, we would sometimes incubate a solution in a market or a system that we think is needed to, in a sense, tackle a failure of the commons, to tackle a gap in the system that nobody else seems to be solving and that we think we have the capability or the resources to help catalyze. So we call that second capability that we bring to bear or that contribution that we try and make you know, our sort of social innovation through social enterprise as Yellowwoods. Hey, Mission to Scale listeners, I need a favor. If the show has helped you in any way, can you share this episode with a friend or colleague? Maybe it's someone who likes listening to good podcasts in their downtime or on their way to work. All you have to do is copy the link in this episode and send it over with a, hey, you might want to check out Mission to Scale. To keep providing the show, we need to build our audience. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe where you listen to your podcasts. Appreciate you for helping spread the word. And thank you for being part of the Mission to Scale community. Now back to the show. When it comes to leadership, Nicholas says they encourage leaders in every sector to find a common purpose in driving systems change. Can you talk through some of the businesses that you've scaled and owned, some of which I think are household brands, not only within South Africa globally, and what some of the benefits of having that kind of corporate business engine are to social change? So I think core to Yellowwood's DNA is to build businesses. It's a very entrepreneurial and dynamic investment group. We like to to grow businesses and are very proud of the fact that, you know, some of our investee businesses, many of which were born in South Africa, are now global multinationals like Nando's, like Hollard, like and beyond. And, you know, that entrepreneurial set of the entrepreneurial culture as well as the disciplines of growth and success in business really shapes how we think about social impact as well. So rather than thinking about, well, we're going to do business and then afterwards we're going to spend some money on a small project or on any project that is a cost center that needs to achieve a philanthropic end, we would rather take the view that says, 
as you grow businesses and as the economy generates value, as we generate value in the economy, we need to be creating value that works for a much wider set of people in the society and the economy. I think that whole idea of value creation for us is not just about financial value creation. It is about creating value in society as well that, you know, is about the social value that is created and the social capital that is built is very important to us as well. I think when you think that way, you then have a growth mindset in a way about social impact. And if you have a growth mindset about social impact in the same way as you have a growth mindset about business, you need to apply similar kinds of principles to how you design your pursuit of social impact and positive social contribution. Here, Nicola talks about how these principles are applied when designing for social impact. Firstly, you know, you have to have a, an operating model or a solution that can tackle a social challenge at a scale that is relevant to the social challenge you're trying to tackle. Secondly, you know, so designing for scale is one thing, but then you have to build the right engine and you have to have the right players and you have to have the right elements to actually succeed in performing this change, in delivering this social impact at scale. And those elements, as with the business, may include, you know, a great A team of people. It might include an operating model that is the right one and can be delivered at the right kind of cost and, and efficiency. It might include the right kind of partners that you need and the right kind of financing that you need. And, you know, when we think about designing social change uh, interventions in that way, uh, we're not starting with a closed mind. We're not saying the only financing solution for a social program is a donor, right? Our starting point is if there's a problem to be solved, there might be many actors who have an incentive to finance the solution. It may be government that has the, the incentive to finance the solution. It may be investors that have an incentive and it may be donors that are needed and have a will, right? And so very often we're looking at financing solutions that are fit for purpose in the same way as if we were running a business, you would look at types of financing for your business that are fit for purpose for the stage of life that you're at and for, and for the, the kind of financial results and long-term value you're trying to create. Nicola is also the co-founder of Harambi Youth Employment Accelerator, a non-profit social enterprise that is solving global challenges of youth unemployment. In case you missed it, we talked about Harambi in season one with Anne May Chang, the CEO of Candid. That episode cited Harambi as an excellent example of an organization that applied the principles of lean impact. Harambi's chief impact officer, Shami Suriana Ryan, also joined us on the podcast. We've linked this episode in our show notes so you can go back and listen. We set goals that were relevant to the size of the problem in the system. So in the case of youth employment, we can talk about numerical goals, like we have a goal to have 3 million young people on a pathway into the economy, a million of those earning that wouldn't otherwise have been earning. But if you look at it at a system level, the other way to think about that goal 
is that at the moment, the majority of young people that exit the education system are within a year of exiting, either not in education, employment, or training. And our goal would be to ensure that through our interventions, you had the majority of young people that are exiting the education system on a pathway within that first year where they are either learning or earning and engaged in a process of progressing themselves forward, whether that's through finding employment, furthering their capacity to earn a living or pursuing self-employment. And so that I would say is the systemic change challenge that we set ourselves and we are able to measure that change at a population scale. Similarly, in early childhood development, we as part of a broader coalition and collective, again, are pursuing the goal of a universal access to early learning for all three to five-year-olds by 2030. That is a South African national goal. And uh, we are doggedly focused on achieving that goal. So again, it's not about we on our own are going to come up with the solution to deliver that. It is we are going to forge the coalitions. We're going to work with others to incubate the solutions. And in some cases, tackle some of the blockages that make it possible to attain that goal. And we're going to hold all of our feet to the fire to make sure that we're moving forward towards that goal collectively. And so you think a goal is essential in doing this systems work. Is that right? I do think that a goal is essential. I think goals can take different forms, but I think that a goal is essential because I think if one is trying to align quite diverse groupings within society that may have different interests in respect of many things. But if you're trying to align those different people around a common purpose, it's very hard if that common purpose doesn't have a form that everybody understands and can buy into. And and also it's very hard to keep driving change forward, especially in very, you know, difficult and intransigent systems. It's very difficult to keep everybody's energy up and keep everybody enthused if you can't declare any victories. Mm. And the only way to declare victories is to have some defined goal that one is moving towards. I think the big question for me is once you've got the goal and you've got the vision, how do you translate all of that into a set of levers, opportunities for investment, things that you want to change? So, and quite practically, how do you go from that one to the other? And I don't know if you want to talk through your experience that led to Harambi and the other systems initiatives around youth or talk more broadly. So I think the um, two starting points for us is really trying to understand the problems, but trying to understand the problems not in a theoretical way, trying to understand the problem from the point of view of the major players in the system. So in any system that we're focused on, we try and understand who the major actors are, who the people are that exercise the most influence over how that system operates, and try and understand from their perspective what is working, what isn't working, 
what needs to change and how that change might affect them and what they might support and what they might resist. So there's a lot of kind of analysis, if you like, of the system and of how the change would come about and who needs to bring it about and what it would take for that to happen. So in the case of youth employment, the reason we had access to a, you know, if you were trying to understand youth employment, there were basically like some main actors in it, right? The one is employers in the economy that were not giving excluded youth their first-time work opportunities at a scale that would be appropriate to distribute opportunity more equitably in the society. Secondly, you had an education system that was failing in general to, to just perform sort of broad educational functions and definitely to produce the kinds of qualifications, competencies, skills that the economy was saying it needed. And then we have an economy that, you know, is in, in low growth and some sectors, you know, facing growth challenges, other sectors growing and, and a lot of political economic challenges in an economy. And so, you know, you're looking at all of those levers. You also had a government that actually is spending a huge amount of its fiscal base on education and, and a huge amount on post-school education. So you have all these ingredients and somehow they're not adding up, right? They're not adding up to the best possible outcomes that are needed to accelerate youth employment in the country. And, you know, we, we could started it from the vantage point of being one of those actors. So we had some businesses that were employers and we said, okay, if we as businesses were to behave differently, could we persuade others to behave differently? You know, it's, it's got, it's like someone's got to take the first move in a system that's in a stalemate, right? So somebody's got to lean in and say, okay, we'll do it differently. We'll take a risk on doing it differently. And then talk to the others who also need to do things differently and see whether we could all agree that if we could all do it differently, we might get a better outcome. And, and that is really how we started. We started with businesses that said, okay, despite all the risks we'll have to take, we will design a solution that maybe could work for the labor market. We will design a solution that other businesses could buy into. And then we will go and talk to government and say, the way the funding is currently working and the way the education system is currently working is not producing what's needed. Can we do it differently? And could we partner to demonstrate that we can do it differently? And then if we succeed, can we then try and use that success to change the way the actual systems behave into the future? So, you know, we could change the way the funding instruments work if we've demonstrated that if you use them differently, you can achieve a different outcome. But rather than sitting outside of government in a small NGO project or inside a business's academy, doing it on our own, you know, creating a shiny diamond, which I think is what a lot of social actors sometimes can do is create a perfect, beautiful project or pilot and then try and sell it to everyone. That's never our starting point. Our starting point is let's assume that the actors in the system could be party to this co-creating this new innovation, right? and have an interest in its outcome so that if it works, they will want to adopt that innovation in their system that includes government, it includes other businesses, it includes the people who need to finance this at scale. 
After about 10 years since Harambe was founded in 2011, the organization went from a cohort of just 40 to having the trust of over 2 million young people in their network. Given our interest in trying to make the economy work more inclusively, we decided to focus on inclusive employment as one of the first focus areas uh, and youth employment in particular. And we observed that in our businesses, which included restaurants and call centers and other entry-level employers, that despite the sort of positive values of the businesses, they were not giving first-time work seekers opportunities. And that when questioned about why that was the case, there were many obstacles to bringing first-time work seekers into the workplace and especially young people from poor and economically excluded families. And we also knew that fixing that problem could have an incredible multiplier effect in the society and the economy. Because if you could distribute those entry-level job opportunities across poor households, that single earner could change the trajectory of the whole household that they were from. And you could really shift the way households were benefiting from the economy if you could crack this one problem, that employers would more actively and more deliberately recruit their first-time workers from poor communities. So can you talk a bit about what happened in the early days and what was the impetus to really create new rather than working with what was there already? So I do want to say that we have not had one approach to how we change the systems and design for change at scale. Um, Harambe is one of five different social initiatives and enterprises that we actually incubated in the same 10-year period. And each of them has a very different modus operandi. Each of them has a very different theory of change. Some of them for example, we have an organization that is a very small organization that has worked consistently as a change management organization within a government system, in this case, the government school feeding system, to improve the performance of that system. And that did not require setting up a large operating organization outside of the government system. It required deploying capability and capacity in to support the government to, to operate that system well. In some cases, like in early childhood development, I think we've adopted a hybrid approach where we've, in some cases, adopted a similar thing where a lot of the work has been to work with and inside government systems to enable changes to regulatory and funding models that are the levers or incentives or blockages to the improved delivery of the system. But at the same time, also recognizing that that would be insufficient because there actually is a gap in service delivery. There is actually a gap in appropriate platforms for delivery and there aren't market incentives or pure market incentives that are going to just organically create those delivery platforms unless they are catalyzed. Yellowwoods are a funder as well. So I presume at some point you put some money into making this happen, but I know it's with 2 million kids, I imagine it's costing rather a lot now to continue to run. And of course, if you want to be truly scalable, you can't be the one that finances it. Could you talk a bit about Yellowwoods and how you see the role of your financing, both philanthropy and in commercial investment? 
So when we're trying to be useful in, in catalyzing change in a social system where our businesses aren't particularly directly involved in their core value chains and where social funding is needed, we will, will generally want the social funding to be catalytic because it's no amount of donor money that is ever big enough to, on a sustainable basis, continue to finance the kinds of solutions that we're talking about at system scale. So if you're talking about universal access to early learning, or if you're talking about progressing youth into the economy, these are, I mean, the costs involved are, are multifaceted, right? If somebody has got to pay a wage, right? There's somebody who's got to pay for an input, like a training or, or, or development process. There's somebody who's got to pay for the innovation itself and for the risk-taking on the innovation. And we tend to use our grants on that third one, right? So we, we tend to say grant money is needed where someone's got to just invest the time and the effort and create time and space for people to solve this problem and figure out what the sustainable financing model is. But it's never the intention that the sustainable financing model is grant money. I just, I cannot think of any large system solution where that could possibly be the case. So in the case of Harambi in the very early days, the assumption was is that the sustainable income flows would come from a mixture of what employers would pay and what government would finance from its existing budgets for post-school education, training, and youth development, which would be a redirecting of existing fiscal spend and a more efficient directing of existing government funding. And that employers would have a, an incentive to pay for this because it actually solves problems that they have around retention, around churn, around accessing ongoing pools of talent that they need. What advice would you give to a leader looking to solve a significant social problem? So the first question I would ask and keep dwelling on is, who are the main actors? If this problem is to be solved, who needs to solve it if it's going to be solved at scale? If it was working, if the system was working, who would be doing what in the system that they are not doing today, right? Who would the system require? Is it you and your organization or is it another existing organization that needs to be behaving or acting differently? Is that a government? Is that a business? Is that a parent? Is that a microenterprise or an entrepreneur? Who needs to be doing something differently? And what is your role in respect of them? And are you clear in what contribution you are making to changing the way they work, if that's what you think is needed. Although I'm encouraging a kind of strategic thinking in the design of solutions and a lot of thoughtfulness in where and how to intervene as social change leaders, I do want to say that none of it happens without social change leaders. And it is the energy and persistence and vision of social change leaders that it makes it all possible. So while I'm encouraging and constantly learning about the hard lessons of choosing what to do and 
being able to know when you're not succeeding, pivot and change and choose something else to do. You know, I, I really encourage social change leaders to believe in yourself and in the process of change and, and know that efforts do add up and they do create the waves that we need. Having had cross-cutting careers in media, education and consulting, both in the private and public sectors, Nicola is uniquely placed to be able to share a breadth of knowledge in scaling impact. One of my main takeaways from my conversation with Nicola was not to accept anything but change at a massive scale, even if that means totally changing the way that you work time and time again. If you want to learn more about Harambee Youth Employment Accelerator, visit harambee.co.za. The link is in our show notes. Thanks so much to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. If you'd like to stay connected with the latest news in global philanthropy, Mission to Scale listeners can get 50% off your first subscription by using the code SPRINGIMPACT at checkout. That's SPRINGIMPACT, one word. Visit alliancemagazine.org to find out more. That's it for today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or colleague. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter.